what you want, when you want it, where you want it. This is The Mesh. Foot Candle Films. Film news and reviews from two guys who really like movies. This episode is brought to you by the Foot Candle Film Society. For a schedule of upcoming screenings and membership information, visit the Society's website at www.footcandle.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. My name is Alan. With me, as always, is Chris. Hello. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing good. Ready to talk about some movies? Yes. Awesome. <laughs> Chris has a very anxious look on his face. He must be ready to jump into some great discussions today. I mean thing is alan i normally don't mention the movies we're gonna we know the movies we're gonna review but we don't know how the other person across the table feels about it different this episode yeah. i have an exact read on how alan feels about both of them and i'm excited to talk about both chris doesn't know the reasons i feel the way about these nope. films i do well i don't but i can imagine you're but, going to have a probably a good educated guess yeah so. all right so with that little teaser of what to come in our discussions we do have film two films we're going to be discussing in today's show the first one is the latest from Steven Spielberg based on a very famous novel, recent novel called Ready Player One. Then we'll be following that up with a discussion about the French documentary Faces Places by uh, Agnes Verda. Okay, so, so two very pause, different films. Which films are, is Alan going to like? Which films is Chris going to like? And then which films are we not going to like? See, okay, I got, make, you got, your, got your betting down. Put your called Vegas. Down. Okay. Likes or dislikes on both films, Chris and Alan. If you've been listening to the show long enough, you know kind of our personalities and our our type of film we enjoy. Right. This is going to be very interesting. Uh, Chris knows how I feel about these films. I don't know how he feels about one film in particular. So we're going to have an interesting interesting episode to go through. Looking forward to it. We're going to go through and do a review of both both films, just like we typically do in our shows. Then we're going to follow that up with a couple of movie news items where he, Chris and I both have a news item that we're curious about, interested, and want to have a little discussion about. Then we're going to close out the show with each of us giving a recommendation of a film that is available online or you can find somewhere fairly easily to see that we think you ought to check out if you have some free time and are interested in broadening your, your film, uh, film watching library. So with that, Chris, are you ready to get into our first uh, review? Absolutely. Our first review is the latest from acclaimed director, longtime director, fanboy favorite Steven Spielberg and his interpretation of the book Ready Player One. Sitting here in my tiny corner of nowhere, there's nowhere left to go. Nowhere. Except the Oasis. I created a hidden object, an Easter egg. The first person to find the egg will inherit half a trillion dollars and total control of the Oasis itself. Steven Spielberg. I'm going to say that we can categorize his career, his filmography, into four categories. Okay, first we mm -hmm. have vintage Spielberg. Vintage Spielberg. Vintage Spielberg. Okay. We're sure. talking about Jaws. The classics. We're talking about E.T. Mm -hmm. Right. Then we have Oscar Spielberg. Oscar Spielberg. Okay. okay. This is, you know, Saving Private Ryan. Mm -hmm. This is Amistad. This mm -hmm. is Lincoln. Got okay? it. Okay. Third category, what I'm going to refer to as 
blockbuster Spielberg. Okay. Mm -hmm. This is a phase of his career where after Oscar time, he then, he's like, things like Jurassic Park. He's like, you know, he's made a name for himself. He's like, I'm just going to go have fun. I'm going to make a blockbuster. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then the fourth category, which I glanced through his filmography. And as far as I'm concerned, there's only one thing in this category. (laughs) It's a very limited category. Yes. Well, in my opinion, Trent, you know, what is the show, but opinions garbage Spielberg. Okay. The sole person or film in this category is, you can probably guess, Crystal Skull. Oh. Yeah. Really? Really? Yeah. That's the only one you put in the garbage category. Yeah, that I can just quick glance at the filmography. Okay. Now, my question is, Alan, yeah. which category are you willing to put Ready Player One in? Oh, boy. Yeah. Um, and if you need to re- me to review those... Let no, me, no, let no. Me know. I'm pretty, I'm pretty but, solid uh, on the You categories. went in, and let me just briefly, we'll briefly talk about Ready Player One just a little bit. Yeah. Um, in case you've been hiding under a rock and you have no idea what movie we're talking about, Alan did say this is based on Ernest Cline's uh, novel that he wrote, kind of young adult, teen novel about Wade Watts, and he lives in the world of 2045 Ohio. Basically, you escape into this world that was called the Oasis that was created by a, you could say, Steve Jobs stand-in called James Holiday. Holiday has died, but he has left the keys to the kingdom, so to speak, hidden within this virtual world that people are trying to compete to get said access and then basically take control and own, take over ownership of the Oasis. So there are all these people in there competing for this game. You're, of course, on the side of Wade Watts. That's roughly kind of a rundown of what's happening during the course of the movie and like mm-hmm. his struggle to go up against this big corporation that is also trying to compete to take over said Oasis. So, yes. Okay, Alan. So going back to your question. Yes. I'm, I'm not prepared to say this goes into the garbage pile. <laughs> okay. Um, I, think, I think personally, I think Hook goes in the garbage pile myself. That's one I do feel like is a garbage film of Spielberg. Really? Garbage? Yeah. Yeah, okay. well, just a personal dislike for me. Okay. Crystal Skull, I could see how you could put it in the garbage pile. It's definitely the lesser of many, many of his movies. Um, I mean, I guess maybe one, Jurassic 2, The Lost World, or whatever that was. Yeah, I don't know. and that's probably maybe a little closer to where I am with this film. Really? In that it had moments I appreciated, Okay, but they were moments. Okay. The film as a whole didn't work for me. Um the best example I can give. So you were giving in the categories and I think there's something interesting, a story, a, a true story about Spielberg that I think can kind of highlight that. Are we going to take the high road and not give any spoilers specific? In yeah, this? no spoilers. Okay. I can do this without spoilers. Okay. Um, so uh, supposedly back when Spielberg was working on Schindler's list, okay. he was also working on Jurassic park. Like okay. interesting at the same time. Interesting. And I remember him being quoted at one point. I'm not getting the quote exactly right. So don't quote me on his quote, but I remember the, the, the sentiment of what he was saying is that he was spending his day shooting Schindler's List, very emotional. He's very personally invested. And then he'd have to go in the afternoon or evening and remotely be doing post-production work on Jurassic Park. Okay. He said, I felt like I was just doing that work just to appease the audiences where Schindler's List was the work I really wanted to be doing. Okay. So I feel Oscar like, Spielberg versus Blockbuster right. Spielberg. I feel okay. like Ready Player One is Spielberg just saying, I'm cashing a check. I've got a book that people think I ought to direct because half the references in the, mo- in the movie are about films of mine anyway. <laughs> so I'll do the film. It'll be a big blockbuster because I haven't really had a big blockbuster in a while. 
And that's the impression I get from this film because there's so little about this that is Steven Spielberg creatively. I can see some shots of his that look like Steven Spielberg shots. I can look at the ending of the film that I think is a very Spielberg ending to the film. But there's not a lot of originality coming from Spielberg as a director. Now, the book itself, okay, the story has some very creative original elements. But I don't think Spielberg's adding anything to this film to make it a Spielberg film and a film worth a high level in his, in his, in his pantheon of films. With the exception of one scene. And I'm not going to spoil what the scene is. You're talking about the second challenge? The second challenge. Well, yeah. I will say that that is pure Spielberg genius. And for about a 10-minute segment of the film, I was enthralled. Yeah. But beyond that, I thought the rest of it was very forgettable and just did not work for me. So there's a lot of reasons why. But I'll let me hit some positives because we sure. are going to do this thing where we talk about positives and sure. then we can go in the negatives. We can find positives about Rio, too. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> right. Positives, um, I will say... I normally am terribly bothered by heavy CGI films. Mm -hmm. This is a film that relies on CGI because you're in a virtual world. I'm okay with that. The actually the heavy use of CGI through three quarters of the film didn't bother me because it made sense for the story we're watching. Okay. Um, I thought Ty Sheridan was fine. I mean, I didn't think he was great, but I thought he was fine. I thought he was very serviceable in the role. Um, he didn't have a whole lot to do. No. Is the problem. He's a really good actor, but he just didn't have a whole lot to do with this part. Um, there was a secondary character that was voiced by T.J. Miller, kind of Irock, that I really liked. Okay. I thought he was really funny. I liked what they did with the character. He was a very subversive character. He's meant to look one way, but yet his personality... It plays off this whole idea that these are all avatars of people in this fake world. Sure. We don't really know what the real people are like at their computers or on their headsets. And he personified that perfectly. You got this great, huge, hulking creature, mercenary guy. But mm -hmm. yet his personality was very nebbish and very just <laughs> unique. And I don't know. It's just a really great mix. And I think they pulled off that character really well. Okay. So I like that. I like the concept uh, that was all attributed to the book, which was these challenges and you've got to try to learn more about the creator of the Oasis to help you further in the game. And I like that whole concept. I just think it was executed pretty poorly in this film. Um, now, Chris, I'm really curious to hear from you because you actually read the book. I did not. Um, this actually did not encourage me to want to read the book. But I'm anxious to hear from you. Did having read the book hurt your perception of the film, help it? And where did you end up on the film yourself? So Steven Spielberg and I haven't really played nice in quite some time. Yeah. Um, I think Catch Me If You Can is the last movie of his that I really liked. Although last year's The Post, I thought was you pretty decent. You liked it. I never saw it, decent. but you liked it. I guess, you know, Oscar Spielberg can be slash cinematic vegetables, to throw that term back out there that we've talked about in the past. Yeah. Um, but I thought it was good. It was a lot better than I thought it was going to be. I was amazed that he did as good a job with this book as he did. Really? Um, and it's actually flip of the reason normally somebody who's read the book goes in. They're like, okay, I want to see this book brought to life. And they come out really cranky because things are not in the movie or are significantly changed. This movie has very, I mean, it, has the characters in the book, the whole idea is there, but something that's pretty major. The three challenges are pretty much nothing like they are in the book. Really? Which blew my mind. In a um, good way. In a good way. Now, okay. granted, the last one 
which actually I think is a big weakness of the movie mm-hmm. is maybe a third of what it was in the book. Okay. But I think because they didn't totally ditch it and come up with a new idea that actually hurt them. Cause I think the last third challenge, the last kind of third of the movie kind of falls apart. Mm-hmm. The wheels kind of come off the okay. go-kart. Um, but the first two challenges and I was sitting there in the theater and I was like, wait a second, this is like nowhere like it was in the book. I'm like, Oh, okay. And, but it, I was okay with it. And then it led up to what you've kind of mentioned, which we're not going to go into spoiler territory. I'll just say it's a Kubrick tribute. Yeah. Um, for the second challenge that blew my mind. I'm I was like, that. I cannot believe I, I can't believe what I'm seeing on screen. And the fact that I was sitting there with my kids and they kind of looked at me because they're like, wait. And I'm like, yeah, this is like one of my favorite movies and things that were being said on the screen by characters in the situation. My kids were asking me and I'm like, yeah, it's kind of scary. Like, they, you know, like yeah. um, so it was just an amazing like cinema moment to have in the theater with my kids sitting beside me that I'll never forget. Um, Almost, you know, worth the admission ticket. Yeah. For me. I mean, you know, that's the things I look back on. I'm like, oh, you know, that alone. I mean, granted, it's a short sequence. Like, it is. It's, it's, it's 10 like minutes. 10 minutes. But man, it's a really good 10 minutes. Is it, it is. worth a, a $9 ticket? Yeah, probably. I could have watched it again for 10 bucks, you know? So, yeah. <laughs> when I think, so that just really impressed me because never before have I gone into a movie already having read the source material and it been that different and it not thrown me for a loop. So okay. that right there, I was like, so the challenges are very different in the book. Well, imagine this. I think you've seen this Harry Potter movie, but I know you didn't read the book. I don't know if you've seen the Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Do you, the, well, he has challenges in that book. Okay? okay. And he has like, he has to do this tournament and they're yeah. like, however many challenges I can't imagine what would have happened? I mean, there would have been riots in the street if they would have changed the challenges in that movie yeah. from the book. And they didn't, they kept them very like to the letter, everything. So that's what was so amazing to me. Now, do I have problems with this movie? Yeah. There are some that, you know, in the first opening scene, I like rolled my eyes and I was like, really, he's really doing this. There's a use of drones and it delivers a pizza fine but the box is very legible to the audience and it's freaking pizza hut and that's not enough that it's just like oh it's dinner no the dad announces to the children hey guys pizza's here like that and it's like did spielberg not have enough money in making this movie that he had to shill for pizza hut less than like two minutes in that was so irritating i was like oh i've got a horrible horrible feeling about the rest of this movie Mm -hmm. but thankfully that did not come to pass but that was like I, I could not believe that that happened. It really, okay. really bothered me. Um, I mentioned the third challenge I thought was cluttered, rushed, didn't make a lot of sense. Even though I'd read the book, I kind of knew where things were going, but I don't. I just didn't really. Yeah, I, the, the mechanics of the third one were really complicating. Actually, all the challenges I thought the way they were portrayed on the in the film were confusing. Well, the second one was the clearest of them all to me, but right. the first and third, I mean, with the first one, if I think back on it, okay, yeah, I get it after a while, but it was still very complex and not really laid out very well in the film. But the third one, I still, it was cool what they were actually having to do, but I didn't understand what the point of them doing it. It just wasn't clear. Right. Um, and I didn't know if the book maybe filled in more details, but it sounds like with the challenges being different, it, it, it they really went in a different direction here. Yeah. And the book suffers from its own problems. Um, okay. Lack of character development. You're kind of saying like, um, 
the character of Wade Watts done by what's his Ty face? Sheridan. Yes, Ty Sheridan, who I like as an actor, even though I couldn't remember his name. I don't think that's his fault. He's just not given a lot to do because I actually thought at first I was like, yeah, he was kind of weak. But then I'm like, well, they didn't really give him a lot to do. No, they didn't really. The people in the movie that are given a lot to do, um, Mark Rylance mm-hmm. as James Halliday, he's kind of in there. As, I really liked him. I did too. I lot. thought he was good. And yeah. he's worked with Spielberg before in the BFG yes. and Bridge of Spies. So he's kind of like, at this point, he's in his personal army of you yeah. know, actors. No, I like Mark Rylance as a strength for me. I thought and he was really good. I really liked Ben Mendelsohn. I, as Sorrento, I, I who's he, kind of the evil, he's the big corporate well, dude. He was in on it. He's he he was playing it for camp, and I think he did a really good job with that. As kind of a campy, big boss villain, big evil, you know, right. uh, I'm a corporate bad guy. Right. And there was nothing complex about him. He was yeah. just pure evil, and I think Mendelssohn played him really well. So weakness wise, um, we've talked about the third act. How Mendel's character, the Sorrento, the big corporate bad guy, at the very end. The way he, I'm just going to say, kind of throws up his hands yep. for lack of, oh. without trying to give spoilers. But oh, we could talk about the ending I didn't, all day long. I didn't night. really mm. understand. That didn't make any sense at all to me. The whole ending in general, after the third challenge, the coda, the kind of the, the wrapping everything yeah. up was way too Spielbergy, syrupy, well, and I think polished, that's, sweet, right? Stuff, and know. unfortunately, I like I think Spielberg's a very talented director, but a lot of my hangups of his tend to be sometimes he polishes off the rough edges or smooths things over and makes it more, you know, syrupy, gives the spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down. And that's kind of where, granted, I'm an adult, so I can take rougher things that are maybe more gritty, more dark, you know. But, you know, he's making this PG-13. He's making it towards the wider audience of parents and children. So... I kind of get it, but it's kind of the cringe-worthy. Okay, you but it didn't was that really sloppy. you didn't was, really need to make it so refined. It was so sloppy. So. I mean, you could still make a nice, happy ending. There, it buttons everything up without being just so by the numbers, so formulaic, so simplistic about it. And uh, I just yeah, I, there were two elements of this film that gave me eye rolls, and it was interesting. They were the book, but it wasn't the, the it wasn't the pizza delivery in the first part. <laughs> well, it, that was part of it. Okay, I was rolling my eyes during the whole first ten minutes because it was a giant setup, narration, mm-hmm. walking me through every aspect of this world that I didn't feel like it had to do. It's like it was I a, really think you could have like dropped me in the oasis. And it would have been a lot more fascinating for me to learn about the Oasis by seeing people interact in it and then sure. seeing people interact out of the real world. So hand-holding and in the first part. I was part. so hand-holding. Yeah. The first 10 minutes, you. I'm like, oh, my gosh, is he really going to explain the entire story to us right. as a voiceover? And then we get to the end, and like I said, it was way too syrupy, buttoned up. You know, um, Even the friend of mine I was with watching it made a good comment about somehow everybody had – confetti ready to go at the very last moment when you know something happens i'm like it just didn't even make you know just it was way too convenient way too syrupy an ending so those were my two biggest hang-ups now the stuff everything in between was kind of give and take some i really liked some i didn't but those two the the beginning and end just set a horrible tone for me for the film so i i really struggled with it um beyond those so so obviously this isn't vintage this isn't no. Oscar, no, no, but no. between garbage and blockbuster, you're going to lump right. it more. Which, you know, because we're the film snobs that we are, I consider myself a film snob. Not intentionally, but I think I am. I think yeah. people would say I am. Would you lump it more of in the blockbuster category? Not because it's, you necessarily, I mean, but it's... It's more blockbuster, but by blockbuster, I'm not saying it's good. Right. Um, 
It is to me. But you're not it saying is, it's garbage. <laughs> it is Jurassic Park Lost World. Okay. It is where Jurassic Park Lost World had some moments I really liked. There were some thrilling moments in it, but as a whole, the movie was just felt disjointed and all over the place and didn't really know where it wanted to go. And I just felt like Spielberg was just going through the motions. It's exactly how I felt with this film. Okay. It had a, some moments I really enjoyed, some moments that were really exciting, but as a whole, I just don't really feel like he got a grasp of the book. From what I understand, as well as I thought he, there were so many things about this concept that maybe the book didn't go into, but Spielberg had a chance to really explore a little bit more. This whole sense of real world versus avatar world. Sure. It's alluded to a couple times by characters, but they don't do anything with it. There's a great moment in the film. Well, what I thought was going to be a great moment didn't turn out to be one where Wade, um, he's only known these other characters mm. as other avatars. And I, I keep waiting to say at some point he's got to meet the real people. And he does. And it's and kind it's of rushed through. Rushed yeah. just by the numbers like, Oh, hi, I'm so-and-so. Yes, I am so-and-so nice to meet you in person. And they could keep running off. I'm like, man, they're just really missed a whole opportunity to explore something really interesting with this film. And I guess maybe me going in knowing the overall plot summary, mm-hmm. I wanted a little deeper that's not to say the book was any deeper, but I'm just saying it's, I mean, just by nature of the fact it gets longer. to be a book and yeah. explain a little bit more. It is deeper. Um, yeah, it's a shame. Something there's a lot that is kind of glossed over that. Yeah. I think it's a good movie. It could have been great. Had they kind of somehow figured out some things to, so, you know, I'm not going to put it in the garbage pile. I think, <laughs> you know, I may still want to take my kids to see it. Cause I think my kids would probably appreciate it more than I do. Uh, just because I think there's some really interesting visual things going on. I think they do some interesting things with the different worlds. I'm impressed that they got as many of the rights to as many different characters and well that, and I think uh, things from video games and from movies and right. other places. I think, um, yeah, it's kind of like a who frame Roger rabbit type yeah. thing where who knows how much money they had to put out there to get rights. It added something to the film and made it yeah, a little yeah. more interesting. Definitely. Um, you know, even the car chase in the first scene, which is the first challenge and you know, I'm not going to spoil how that goes, but there's a lot of elements being thrown in the mix. And I remember watching it in a preview or a clip of it and saying, Oh my God, I'm going to hate this because it's just so much happening. CG animated stuff. But when you get into it, it's like, it's actually kind of fun because it's like, you're kind of watching to see, all right, well there's the Batmobile and there's, you know, other things happening. And it kind of made it fun to kind of stay engaged with it. So I was okay with it. I mean, anybody, you know, and, Obviously, this movie is kind of geared towards geek culture because the character of Wade Watts, it's all like he's trying to pull all this 1980s trivia and 1980s movies because that's what James Halliday liked. And so he's using those as hints. I mean, there are Easter eggs throughout this movie. I mean, there's probably like a book where, you know, a 900 page book worth of telling you where all the different Easter eggs. And so if you if you're a geek of movies and you like to look for those type of things. You'll enjoy this just because of that. I actually think the movie's got a lot less, a lot more limited appeal than people think mm-hmm. because I can't see, I can't see a lot of people older than me getting mm-hmm. any enjoyment from this film. Sure. I mean, the enjoyment I did get was I did play video games as a kid. So I kind of know, you know, when they're talking about the Atari 2600 and that plays a, a role in part of the film, I'm like, totally. Yeah, I mm-hmm. did that. I recognize that. I just can't imagine anybody older than me getting any real enjoyment from the film because it's going to be just a convoluted mess to a lot of people. It was almost a convoluted mess to me in a lot of places. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a kid of the eighties, you know? Right. So, uh, I don't know. I, it, it's not performing gangbusters, 
which I think is why I think it actually does have a little bit more of a limited appeal. Um, Spielberg was probably the right person to bring on board, but I just don't feel like he was really as emotionally invested in this as he has been in some of his other Oscar movies in the last 10 years. Sure. And I think he coasted a little bit. And um, again, Jurassic Park two is the best similarity I can give. I felt very similar about those two films. So, okay. So you're more positive on it. I am mainly because you thought he did a good job converting the book into a movie that was interesting on its own. Right. Without, yeah, he went into it trying to make a good movie and not worry about the book so much, which yeah. I think is a trap a lot of people fall into. Okay. They are so loyal to the book that the movie ends up being So you're boring. more admiring him for doing something a little different with the book and going off and doing making some changes and, and turning it into a, right. what I he mean, felt like was a more serviceable Steven film. Spielberg, to me, he's the last person that I would think would take risks mm-hmm. with source material. Okay. Um, but he did. Yeah. You know, and I was, I was really surprised. I was surprised more negative on it, but I will say, I think it's worth seeing only because it is an interesting watch. And I think there's a lot of conversations you can have from it. I think there are a few moments, especially that second challenge that are totally worthwhile to go see. Um, so yeah, it's worth seeing, but man, I'm just, it is much, much lesser Spielberg than, uh, than I, I was hoping it would be. I would be interested to see what you thought of the book. Um, yeah, I got to decide if I actually want to read the book now or not. It's a, it's a I, quick, it's a quick read. I, as a general rule of thumb, right. I don't read. Sure. You know, not narrative fiction books, right. you know, so I have a hard time getting into those. So I'll have to see if I decide this, if this convinces me to want to go check it out or not. So Alan, here's the, here's the true test. Did you play Dungeons and Dragons as, oh, at yeah. any point? Yeah. You yeah. need to read the book. Okay. That's all I'll say about it. All right, good deal. <laughs> yes, I, I absolutely did. So Okay. Okay, well, that's Ready Player One. Uh, we're a little mixed on it. I'm definitely on the more negative side. Chris is uh, a little more slightly positive, but we both admit that there are some flaws with the film. But um, I think we're both saying it's worth checking out, just definitely not in the higher level of Spielberg's work. So with that, let's move on to our second film, which is a completely different film. Uh, type of film. It's a documentary from France. It's by longtime director Agnes Varda, and it's called Faces Places. Moi, je n'ai pas oublié les images de tes films. Le visage de Cléo. J'ai adoré voir depuis le train les yeux que tu as collés sur des containers. Ce qui est drôle, c'est qu'on ne se soit pas croisé depuis le temps. Director Agnes Varda, who at the time of the making of this film, I believe was either 88 or 89 years old, has been directing films in France for many, many years. I think at last count I, I checked in, she has made 52 films. She's been busy. Very busy. <laughs> this is a documentary where Agnes Varda actually is herself in the film as a documentary. She's the subject of the documentary along with a partner, uh, a photographer and a muralist who goes by the name, just JR, the two initials, the documentary faces places is the partnership. These two form the friendship. They start to develop and going around the French countryside, visiting different villages and places and spending time on artistic endeavors that explore people's faces, learning more about the people they're encountering and the places that they, these people live. That's really the film in a nutshell. It's a very breezy film. It's a short, short film, hour 29. And it follows them along as they go from place to place and varies between some artistic and uh, um, 
uh, endeavors they take on, as well as just getting to meet some people and even visiting some elements of their own personal lives. So Chris, with this, we have a documentary that, you know, it was, I will say, I'm not getting into my review yet, but I'll just say on general, a little more refreshing because, you know, nowadays we get into independent cinema. There's normally heavier topics. It's normally a little more dark and depressing things. This is very obviously very open and clean and friendly and just kind of a nice stroll of a film to take. But my question to you is not necessarily, was it, you know, a nice, fun, enjoyable experience? It's like, was it worthwhile? It was nominated for best documentary. Yes. And some of the criticism I have heard, even though this has gotten almost universal love from critics, but people still did question, all right, was it really a best documentary? Thinking about the amount of effort that went in to make this film, thinking about just the overall purpose of this film compared to some of the other documentaries that are made, even the one that won Icarus by the one that Netflix uh, produced, where you have years of research going into place and you have a lot of extensive work there. You have a film that you probably could have shot in a few weeks and you probably could have shot with a very, very simple crew and without a whole lot of scripting and forethought, just a very simple, easy film. So my question to you, this documentary, besides it just being light and breezy and kind of maybe enjoyable to watch, was it worthwhile at all for you? Did it do anything for you to make, to justify its existence as a film that uh, especially getting all the acclaim it's getting? Well, I think for me, um, the brief description, just, you know, two people traveling around the countryside, taking photos and meeting people. And it's a documentary that to me would make me want to like stab my eyes out. That sounds really boring. I would have no interest in it whatsoever. But this was basically lightning in a bottle. Um, And I think it worked for me because you take something that seems trite. It's a generation thing. You have this 88, 89-year-old woman and this like young whippersnapper, 30-something photographer. Both are very talented. You put them together, make them travel around together, and do art together. So you're like, Okay, that's a little bit more interesting. Mm-hmm. And then the way that they, the people that they meet and the f- photography that they end up doing are like these gigantic photos that they take. They take regular photos of people and then they plaster them on the sides of buildings. And then the, the way they do that is just, it's pretty unique. Um, and I, I could really appreciate that. So for me, yes, definitely worthwhile. And you may think at the beginning, they pull off a pretty much gut punch at the beginning they kind of go into this one town it's a mining town and the person they end up there's this one particular person they end up doing a picture of and when she comes out of her house and sees that it's been done for her she does she's speechless Mm -hmm. um and it was kind of a gut punch for me like i was like oh my gosh this is something that should be at the end of the movie not the beginning right now pause on that thought um she was part of the whole French New Wave movement, mm-hmm. which they prided themselves on not really having a plot and jumping around a lot, using a lot of jump cuts. Not circular storytelling per se, but just storytelling that goes all over the place. Not even flashbacks, but it's just really weird storytelling ways of doing things. At the end of this documentary, the way it ends, and then you think about how it was constructed it's kind of like a French New Wave documentary. So that to me made me admire it more because they don't follow a strict through line. And so that, that again, it's like, Oh, it's not just this sweet sentimental documentary. That's light and breezy about these two people driving, mm-hmm. but even the construction of it, there was a lot more thought 
put into how they were doing it. Yeah. Um, and so that just made me kind of appreciate it on a level that I didn't think I would, because going in, I knew kind of what you were saying that it was going to be kind of light, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a feel good type thing. And it was that, but there's, there's more to it than just that. So, yeah, I agree. There is more to it. And I, I did enjoy this film as well. Um, I don't know if I'm quite up there to the level of, you know, the best documentary of the year and some of the other accolades that different critics are giving it. Uh, I think it's really good. I think sure. it's very enjoyable. Uh, I think there's well, it didn't, it didn't win. So. It didn't. Uh, <laughs> I think there's a lot of things to talk about with it. Sure. Um, I did feel like it was slight and that was okay by me. I was okay with it being a slighter film. It had some heavier topics. It, it, if you really wanted to dig into it could, but at the surface you could take it as a very simple, not getting too deep, not reaching too far film. And I was okay with that. That's not a complaint. That's just me saying that I'm okay with it being a documentary that's not trying to solve the world's problems or not trying to, you know, uh, go so deep into one topic that you just get overwhelmed with stuff. See, it was very, that's that's you know, the biggest strength of the film to me is yeah. that I appreciated the artistry and the simple nature of it. They didn't try to be profound. Right. It's not like Icarus or Strong Island right. or the Abacus documentary. That all yeah. three of those are also nominated for Best Documentary. Their agenda is right in front of you. It hits you in the face as soon as you start watching it. Mm-hmm. This, on the surface, doesn't have an agenda. It's yeah. just about, here are two artists. Here's yeah. them going around doing art. The more you could choose to dig into it, there's a lot more there sure. about... Growing old, death, um, artistic expression, memory. Like there's a whole lot more that could you can pull out of it, but you can just not pay attention to that. And See, that's what I was going to say is that, yeah, it touches on those subjects. Right. But it doesn't dwell on them and it doesn't go deep into them. Right. It lets you as the viewer decide, ah, do you want to explore that a little bit more? Do you want to talk about that afterwards? Do you want to think about it more? Or you just say, huh, that was a nice scene. Let's move on to the next. Or, it was interesting what she just said, but we're going to go on. And see her do something else or see them do something else. And even, which you could say this was kind of the French New Wave part of it, scenes of reconstructing certain things or having a little bit of artifice in there where things just didn't naturally happen. They kind of made them happen, which is usually anti the documentary feel, which was done kind of in stories we tell to throw to something we did a long time ago. Recreation scenes, scenes of recreation. And I remember coming off that movie, although I liked it, I was really bothered by how I feel like you didn't know what was real and what was not sure. real. Right. And in this, and in a documentary to me, that's pretty important. Yeah. Um, in this documentary, they, you kind of get a feeling of what's staged and oh, what's yeah. not staged. They're very obvious about staging some things. Right. And it's not, I mean, it didn't bother me because no. it didn't change the impact of the real documentary scenes for me. Right. It just was a simple way of them setting the groundwork of what they're going to do and what's going to happen next. Uh, and it really was just staged dialogue between the two of them. A lot of it happening off camera. You would see the back of their head sitting somewhere and you could tell the dialogue was recorded some other time, but it's just helping them collect their thoughts about what they just experienced or what they're going to be doing next. And right. it, it worked for me. The structure worked fine. It was an odd structure. And like you said, I agree with you about the very emotional moment that happens early in the film and why that didn't happen at the end. But yet, I also think it was very intentional to have a very unorthodox narrative to this. They didn't want it to have just this big happy ending. They want it to kind of follow along the country road and just see where things take them. And it just so happened one of the more emotional settings happened to be earlier in the trip. And this other thing happened later in the trip. And that's the way it came out. And that's okay. You um, mentioned in the review of Ready Player One 
how there were moments that you liked. Um, mm-hmm. With this documentary, I think there are definitely moments. We've mentioned kind of the one at the beginning, the coal mm-hmm. mining person's moment. Are there any others that you can come to mind? I have, I could go on. I have oh yeah, there's several, several. There's, there are many, okay. many moments I thought were really interesting. There's a, there's an interview. They, they go to a factory, um, a very unconventional setting for art and put in two art installations, which they themselves were, were fun to watch them put those together. But then they interview someone who is an employee at that plant. And he's talking about the fact that today was his last day. He was retiring and you get a sense of him, uh, both being excited, but also kind of being a little scared. This is like the first time in 30 plus years that he hasn't gone into this factory to work. And, you know, just some of those human elements, they some of the interviews they did along the way, I think were really well done. I liked all the art that they did, like mm-hmm. anywhere they put up pictures up on a wall or up on a uh, water tower or up on a, you know, a fallen German bunker that had fallen into the beach. I mean, all these things they put, art on and pictures on was great. I loved it. So yeah, it was, there's probably a half dozen moments I could recall from the film that were just really, really good that I still think about and would like to share with other people. Right. I have the opportunity to do so. The mining town woman's face on the building was the most uh, powerful moment and my favorite moment of the film. So, um, you know, all the rest kind of pale in comparison a little bit to that one, but sure. they're all still really good too. So, yeah. Right. I, I, I thought the film was good. I thought okay. the film was good. I thought it was worthy of a lot of the acclaim it's getting. And having not been very familiar with Agnes Varda at all, I, I know she's a director. I know she's directed a lot of work. I know she kind of was in the same crowd with uh, Godard and Truffaut and some other French directors in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I, I just don't know her work. So right. this is gotten me interested in checking out some of her work from what I can tell. She seems to be a director that actually sometimes will put herself in her own films and be the subject of her own films. And I got the sense of that with faces places that she was very comfortable being in front of the camera and being uh, the subject of some of her work. And I'm also really curious about the work of JR just to sure. see what he does as an artist in other, other places. And you want to know if he life. really always wears sunglasses. <laughs> I would imagine he probably does. I can't imagine they would <laughs> fabricate that for the documentary. Um, I would hope not. So, you know, it was a, it was a fun, interesting film. I uh, had some nice things to talk about afterwards and it was just nice to have something that was, that didn't have to necessarily require a lot of thought if you didn't want to put a lot of thought into it. Sure. That's that's what I mean by slight, is that sure. you could take it as slight as you want, or you could really try to explore the themes. So Faces Places, I think we're both coming in positive. It sounds like you're more positive than I am. I think you really took away from it. So on both films, I'm a little higher than you are. Which is very them. unique. Normally, yes. I'm the optimist on these films, and you tend to be a little more critical <laughs> on ones. But this is true. Chris is actually uh, rating both films more positively than I am. So, But don't get me wrong. Faces Places, I think, is a great film. I think it's a very, very good film. Um, on a one to five scale, if I'm doing a letterbox rating, I'm at a four hmm. for it. So, I mean, it's okay. good. Ready Player One, I'm probably more two and a half. Wow. Okay. Two to two and a half, somewhere in there. So, okay. anyway, just so for frame of reference of where we are in the films. So, that's our two reviews. Uh, going backwards, you know, Ready Player One still in theaters as we're recording this. Uh, Faces Places is actually online available as of now. So you could actually rent it on iTunes or Amazon Video by the time you listen to this. And we do think it's, it's worth checking out. It's an enjoyable uh, time and an enjoyable documentary to, to, to watch. 
All right, Chris, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, we've got a couple of movie news items to share. And then we're going to finish up the episode with our recommendation. So stay tuned. You're listening to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. We'll get back to your show in a moment. Just a reminder, you're listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Find out more at themesh.tv and give us feedback on what you like. And now, as promised, back to your show. Welcome back to Foot Candle Films here on TheMesh.TV. Alan and Chris with you here. We just spent the first half of the show reviewing the films Ready Player One and the film Faces Places. Uh, before we move on to our news and our recommendation section, just a couple of things to get out there, some housekeeping items and, and things to be keeping you aware of going forward. Uh, this is TheMesh.TV. This is a podcast network. So what this means, in case this is your first time listening to us, is that you can listen to any of these episodes you like from our website, themesh.tv. That's T-H-E-M-E-S-H dot TV. You can go listen to both the current episodes and also go back in time and listen to past episodes. But what makes it unique as a podcast is that you can also subscribe to it. So instead of just going to the website and finding the episode and playing it on your webpage, you can actually subscribe to it and have it downloaded to your device of choice, whether it's your mobile phone, your tablet, your laptop, whatever it may be. Listen to the episodes on demand, but also have them pushed to you whenever a new episode is released. So if you subscribe to the show, that means that the minute we hit publish and say, here's a new episode to listen to, you could have it downloaded to your device and ready to listen to without you having to go out and find it yourself. So we do encourage you, if you enjoy this, to go and subscribe to the show. Otherwise, you can always listen to shows on demand anytime you want from TheMesh.TV, or you can search on any other podcast applications you may be using. We are featured in most of the major uh, podcast directories at the moment. Also, Chris, I know we want to remind our audience that we do have our next film festival coming up. The Foot Candle Film Festival will be taking place September 28th through September 30th of this year, 2018. It'll be our fourth year of the festival. Uh, could be looking at anywhere between 25 and 35 to 40 films that we're showing over a three-ish day weekend. Final schedule's not put together yet, but we will have that probably by the summertime. But if you want to go ahead and mark your calendars and be available, we'd love to have you as our guest to come and join us for the weekend here in Western North Carolina at the foothills of the Blue Ridge Mountains. It's a beautiful time of year. It'll be a beautiful area, and we're going to have some great films to check out. So, Along with that, if you are a filmmaker, uh, we have two different deadlines as we're approaching the festival. Uh, end of May would be our regular deadline, and the late deadline is end of June. Because at some point, we've got to cut, the, cut it off so we can you know, review the films and see which ones are going to make the festival. But if you're a filmmaker and you have a film and you want to submit it, you can do that by going to footcandlefilmfestival.com. And there's a link there to submit on um, Film Freeway. So yeah. that's right. The Foot Candle Film Festival is put on by Foot Candle Film Society, which is the group that also puts on this podcast. So you can learn more about the Film Society at footcandle.org to see what screenings we have coming up and to find out about our membership and so on. But we got the festival in September, and that's our big premiere event every year. And we're very excited about it. Hope to see you in this neck of the woods uh, that time of year. 
Chris, let's talk about a little bit of movie news items. Uh, you have a news item of interest to you that uh, we can discuss. What is, what is that news item? We talked about this service. I think you've probably heard of it. Netflix. Netflix? Right. Understood. I think right. I've heard of it. Yeah. Well, now um, the French people have heard of it. I think that it was already over there. <laughs> Francis heard but of it. Francis heard of it. Yes. Uh, because this, we talked before previous in news how the Cannes Film Festival and Netflix kind of had a dust up last year. Um, Okja was there as long as the Meyerowitz stories, two kind of big films. They premiered at Cannes, but then they went to Netflix and they didn't get a typical theatrical distribution. Well, Cannes got pretty cranky about that, and there were words back and forth between them and Netflix. And then, of course, you know, kind of died down, people moved on. Well, Cannes just happened, or is happening. And um, (laughs) they kind of said, okay, as of now, if you do not have a typical theatrical distribution in France or whatever, you know, then we're not going to let your films premiere here, but they can still be out of competition. We won't let them compete. And Netflix said, well, you know what? Forget you. And they said, you know, if we're not going to be in competition, we treat all films the same. They pulled all their films. And you're saying, well, okay, is it just like this year's Okja and Meyerowitz stories? Well, let me tell you which three films they pulled. Mm -hmm. They pulled uh, Jeremy Saulnier's new film, which is going to be a big deal. This guy that did Blue Ruin, Green Room. Green Room. Mm -hmm. Um, It's going to be an even bigger film. I can't remember the stars in it, but it was kind of, he's gaining momentum. Okay, pulled his film. Pulled Paul Greengrass's new film. He's Mm. the guy that started off the Bourne films. Pulled his film. And this is like the big one, supposedly. Of course, I haven't seen it yet because it's a can, but it would have been Alfonso Cuaron's new film, Roma. And a lot of people were saying it was going to be kind of like Oscar worthy. You know, it's the guy who did Gravity. It was like pretty big deal. And they pulled that. Hmm. Um, So (laughs) um, good news is if you have Netflix, you'll get to see these movies. (laughs) Don't know about other others. Um, But I just think it's really interesting that it's another stake in the ground that Netflix is putting down. Is it going to pan out for him? Don't know. Um, but it's just interesting that they are now, they were kind of ruffled feathers last year with uh, Ken, and now they're just basically, it's a full they're, they're sworn on now, enemies. So, yeah. yeah. So I, all right. I love going to a movie theater. I love watching a movie in a movie theater. It is absolutely my preferred method of watching a movie. It is my preferred venue for watching a movie, but I don't think any awards program that's focused on awarding a film should penalize said film because of the distribution channel it's chosen. That's my personal feeling. I would agree. Okay. If a film decides through whatever method reasons to go straight to an online service, I don't think that should change the way that film is perceived in any circles of uh, film criticism, film recognition awards or anything else. I would agree. Yeah. Now, I get that Cannes is also not just a film festival, but it's also a place where studios go to... It's business. It's a business. It's a you business. You go to purchase films. You Absolutely. purchase distribution. The just movie, like, chan- movie theater chains, I'm sure, get a lot of their traffic from yeah. the films that are sold. Just like and Sundance is a business. Yes. I mean, it's, it's business. So I can understand from a business perspective the reasoning why they would think to do some of these limitations, but I still think it's wrong. If you're going to do a film festival... And the film festival is to recognize the art and craft of film, then it should not matter to the distribution channel. We have to understand that in the next 10 years, as much as I love movie theaters, 
they're going to continue to become more and more niche focused, right. more boutique movie theaters. And I think the big chains are going to find business slipping every year. We're already seeing that start to happen now. Right. You know, we have to be acknowledging the fact that movies are going to start to go online. They're going to be people who pay a lot of money and get a movie beamed into their house the very opening night it comes out. And that's going to be okay. That's going to be accepted by the studios and others in the future if the money's right. So I, I just, it makes me, it, it bothers me because I admire what Netflix is doing. I admire the kind of quality and talent that they've been pulling together and the kind of films they've been putting together. They're not all winners. They've had some clunkers. They've had some bad movies, but every studio does sure. just like any other studio. Um, to have this spat between the two, I just don't think is good for films in general. I, I don't think it's the right, the right thing to happen here. So it's a bit of a snobbish move. I, to me, it seems like can is pulling like a music label thing when iTunes came out yep. and it's like, I mean, Maybe that'll work out for them. Like, oh, you're going to put your music online for people to download for a buck a song. Well, we don't want to deal with that. So we feel like our traditional method is the best. So forget you. And we see where they are now. I mean, every (laughs) I doubt very many people buy physical music anymore. And uh, they just refuse to step in with the time. And I kind of feel like this way can is being right now. So Right. Which, yeah, I'm kind of surprised that they pulled that kind of hard line. But we'll see. Well, we'll see how it all pans out from that. But uh you know, what, what What matters to me is how do the film still get to people in giving people the most exposure to a film? Right. I take a movie like Mudbound, which I really liked. I thought was a yeah. really good movie. And it's not one that would have come to my area where we live no. uh, on its own. And I don't know if I would have ever had a chance to see it if Netflix hadn't pushed it out as quickly as they did. Right. So. Examples like that, I think, is great what Netflix is doing. And um, we never probably would have seen Okja until oh, no. you know, who knows no. when. I yeah. mean, that's the thing. If you live in New York City and you've got a chance to see every new little independent movie that comes out because of the plethora of movie theaters around there, that's great. But when you live in Western North Carolina and your options are a little more limited about what films come to your area, when you have a service like Netflix that is going to push them out as soon as they're available, so you can see them the same time. Everybody else in the world does. Right. There's something kind of magical about that. I mean, <laughs> there is. And, and I don't, don't like the fact that it's being penalized here. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, Chris, mine is a lot less sophisticated and a lot less, uh, you know, discussion worthy maybe. But I just. It's about the new Transformer movie. Bumblebee. <laughs> Close. Okay. Um, so, stepping back into our Ready Player One discussion and a little bit of 80s nostalgia. Okay. And the constant discussion we have about either reboots or sequels to films that whether or not there should be reboots or sequels to. Yes. Chris Columbus. Are you familiar with Chris Columbus? He did the first two Harry Potter movies. Yeah. Yeah. But earlier than that, do you know what Chris Columbus did? Did he do one of the Jumanji movies? Um, I don't know if he did Jumanji or not. Okay. He did the Bicentennial Man with Robin Williams. Yeah, but I'm thinking even earlier than this. (laughs) Um, Gremlins. Oh, gee. Yeah. So uh, there is supposedly a script for Gremlins 3 mm-hmm. by Mr. Chris Columbus. <laughs> okay. Supposedly, the tone of the script is to be that should Gizmo, the original little Gremlin, that really, if you think back to it, kind of started this the whole mess that happens in the two movies, should he be eliminated? Whoa. Should he be held responsible? For all the dangers and problems he's created. So he has to get, it's called Gizmo Goes to Court? Gizmo, Gizmo Under Trial, yes. <laughs> nice. Um, you know, 
he's talked a little bit about that's kind of the tone of the script he's built. And it's a little more about really kind of exploring this and, you know, uh, hmm. kind of an interesting take on it. But supposedly, I, I'm not as interested in the plot line because I know it'll change between script sure. writing and the film itself. More the fact that a Gremlins three. Um, I remember you talking about the first Gremlins, having revisited it, not maybe in the last year or two, and really being disappointed oh, with man. how bad it was. Yeah. You thought. I mean, didn't help that my kid was like, "Wait, you like this movie?" I'm like, "I did." Yeah. <laughs> I yeah. I have watched it recently, and I I still had fun with it. I mean, it does not hold up, no. but I think it's still a fun movie. The second Gremlins, I remember when it came out, thinking it was absolutely batty hmm. and really crazy the different direction they took it in. But I kind of liked it. Did he do? Did he direct both? I think he did. Okay. And it was a pure comedy. I mean, there was very little horror with the second one. Hmm. Basically, they all go to New York City and they take over a network, TV network, an office building. And it's it was straight comedy hmm. from what I remember. Okay. And I actually thought it was pretty fun. Okay. Um, definitely not scary, but it was kind of fun. <laughs> okay. So... I'm curious about a, a Gremlins 3, what they could do with it. Um, you know, you've got things like Ready Player One and other 80s things that are kind of coming back into vogue. And sure. Gremlins is a pretty novel 80s type of character and, and franchise. So I know your feelings on the first one. So I'm assuming you have no interest in a third Gremlins coming out. But I'm curious. <laughs> your take on it? No, I, I am curious just because it's like a franchise. I mean, they, they already had a sequel back in the day. And it's not not trying to even reboot it, it sounds like, but just do like a Gremlins 3. Um, interesting that they think that's going to work. Um, I would be, I would not run out to the theater to see it, but I'd, I I am interested. That's that's kind of bizarre. Well, and of course, the most important question that every fan of the Gremlins franchise <laughs> has is, is it going to be puppet Gremlins or is it going to be CGI? And according to Mr. Columbus, again, this is early. Sure. They have not shot a single frame of this movie yet. He said CGI will be minimal. See, um, that makes me admire it because, mm-hmm. you know, you're saying, yeah, I, just the first one, maybe it's because I'd only watched it when it originally came out and I loved it. I had all the records. I had little toys. and Then I had not watched it until last year. And then it was like, oh, my gosh, this is horrible. <laughs> um, <laughs> so my son was like, this is terrible. I'm like, yeah, well, it was cool back when I saw yeah. it in the 80s. So. Now giving it, you know, if they could somehow manage to pull off a movie that was acceptable to today's audiences using minimal CGI and like kind of doing the puppets thing, that'd actually be really, that'd be really cool. If they can stay that route, that that would make me more interested to see it. Yeah. Well, we'll see. That supposedly is uh, under development. Are they, do you, have they said whether or not it's going to be more kind of back to the original where there was like horror yeah, PG thirteen horror. Again, this or? is all from Chris Columbus saying he said uh, it's as twisted and dark as anything. Oh, um, okay. He said he just found it to be a very easy place for him to fall back into, and um, hmm. so we'll see. He said dark and twisted. Okay, um, which you're saying the second one was definitely not. <laughs> yeah, and okay. he's saying uh, he definitely wanted to return to the macabre tone of the original film, where monster murders were so intense that. You know, it was along with Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Those are the two films that brought along the PG-13 rating. Got to. I mean, um, shooting saw blades at people. That yes. Was, yeah. I mean, yeah. when it came out, I mean, it was PG. Oh. And that one and the, especially the heart-ripping scene out of Indiana Jones and Temple of Doom, that was the, the things that said, okay, okay, they need another rating because they were bringing little kids in these films and they're freaking out. It's, <laughs> you know, not good. So. Right. All right. So that's Gremlins 3. We'll see if it actually goes into true production or not. 
It is on the slate, meaning they are okay. planning to make it, but you know, anything could happen. So sure. The eighties flashback and revival continues. It appears. <laughs> All right, Chris. Well, that's our news for the episode. We do close up our show with the final section, which is where you and I both present a film that we'd like to recommend to our viewers or listeners, something that is available through some source online or, or, or rental somewhere that we think is either worth checking out or maybe revisiting if we thought it was overlooked from before. So with that, Chris, I'd love to hear what is your recommendation for the show? So my recommendation is a film from 2009. It's stop motion and it's called a town called panic. And the best description I can give you is imagine if people at cartoon network decided to make a G rated stop motion animated film, but still make it bizarre enough that it would fit right into adult swim. That's what this movie is. Mm -hmm. Um, it's weird. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it's basically a cow, a little figure, like a toy figure of a cowboy and an Indian that live in this little house and just bizarre stuff goes on. I can't begin to explain to you all the different bizarre things that happen, hmm. but it's funny. Okay. Um, with the exception of maybe one or two little things, I think kids could actually watch it. They would be like, what am I watching? But cause it's really, it's just really, really random. I guess like, Stop motion directed by David Lynch maybe is a good way, but it's not upsetting like mm -hmm. some of David Lynch's stuff can be. Sure. But um, town called, a town called Panic. It's streaming on Fandor, which is where I saw it. Right. Um, I think you can also like you know see it maybe on Amazon, but definitely probably get it from iTunes. But um, I a town called Panic. I honestly have never heard Panic. of it. So yeah, I can't recommend it enough for people that are in my mindset. It was it was awesome. So cool. It okay, is. Awesome. It is. This will make it challenging, I guess, for like little, little kids. It is subtitled because it's mm. a weird import from France, but it's still cool. So. Awesome. Great. All right. So mine, um, you know, I know sometimes we try to recommend films that maybe we thought were, were not as seen as many by many people or didn't get a lot of acclaim. This is a film that got a lot of attention, but I also think a lot of people did not go seek it out because the attention it got was fairly negative. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, Darren Aronofsky's film Mother oh, yes. with an exclamation point at the end. So it's Mother! Mother. <laughs> um, 2017. This is the film with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. Also with Ed Harris and Michelle Pfeiffer. You watched this, uh, spoiler, not spoiler, but yeah. disclaimer, Alan actually watched this movie on a plane. I watched I it just, on a mobile phone. A mobile a phone on a plane. I just like to throw this out there. Yeah. For anybody so that's actually seen the movie. Whether or not that affected my viewing or not, I'm not sure, but... <laughs> I actually watched this second time in a more traditional, okay. nice big TV screen setting, uh, and I'm I'm I gotta tell you, I really really appreciated this film. I, I I thought it was great. I can see how it turned off a lot of the audience, but here's the secret to enjoying this film: is knowing why some substances no, or have some drinks. Go before. into the film knowing that there is a bigger story being told, and try to think through the film of what it is the director's trying to convey. If you go in looking for a linear plot with, you know, characters and development and trying to understand the story, the actual plot of the, what the characters are doing, I think you lose a lot of the film. And I think this will probably frustrate a lot of people. Sure. They're watching it saying, I don't understand what's happening. I don't get what this, what's, ha what's going on in this scene. It's all telling a bigger story and it's a lot more symbolism and a lot more representativeness for other things. If you go into the movie knowing that and you spend your time more focused on what it is the director's trying to communicate through this through his telling of the story, I find it to be a lot more interesting 
and enjoyable as well. Okay, I'm not going to spoil anything. I've yeah. seen this movie and trying to keep it spoiler free, your recommendation of it. Going in, you knew that there was going to be some symbolism, but you didn't know what it was going to be. Right. Okay, see, that's the disadvantage I went. I still like the movie okay, but I'm not as high on it as you mm-hmm. are. But basically, somebody had spoiled kind of gave me an idea of what I might be getting into. Uh, I knew there was symbolism, but they kind of hinted at what it might be. And that kind of, that yeah, kind of, no, just it. go in knowing that there is a bigger story being told than gotcha. what you're seeing just with these two to four characters. Right. Um, and I think some of the enjoyment is really trying to see what the message is that the director's trying to get across by the end of the film. Mm-hmm. That's what the enjoyment was for Do me. Do you think it's he like, knows the message? No, yeah, absolutely. No, I think he knows. Okay. I'm, I'm actually, extremely clear on, on what I think the messengers, the uh, director's message was. Hmm. Um, so Darren Aronofsky, who started off uh, with the film, um, what was the film he did? Pie. Pie. That's right. And he did Requiem for a Dream. He's done The Wrestler. He's done um, Black, uh, Swan, Black Swan. Fountain. Uh, the Fountain. And then uh, Noah was his last film before this one. Right. This is a film with Jennifer Lawrence and Javier Bardem. I think Jennifer Lawrence is excellent in this film. I'm she's, not a she's good. huge fan of her. I mean, I think she's a good actress, but I've never been like bowled over by her. Sure. This one, I'm like, oh yeah, she's got, she's got the chop. She's really good in this film. Actually, everybody I think is really good. Michelle Pfeiffer, I think is really, <laughs> really good. In a, kind of a, a different role for her to play. Yeah. Um, it's interesting visually. It's interesting storytelling wise. And again, it's just, trying to think through what the bigger messages are the director's trying to convey. And I, I think it's, by the end of the film, I think it's pretty clear to me anyway. But it really crystallized on a second viewing. I'm watching it with the second viewing, looking for those messages that mm. are being installed. And it's a lot more obvious the second time you're watching it, what's going on. I think it's really worth watching just because don't watch it by yourself and then be by yourself for the next few days just to stew (laughs) on it. Watch it somewhere with somebody and Mm. then talk about it afterwards and see what everybody got from it. That's probably the most fun. I did that with my wife and we had a really good conversation about the film, just trying to understand all the pieces of it. It is disturbing in parts. It is very, very challenging in parts. It goes in directions you're probably not going to expect it to go by the end of the film. But that's also, for me, was part of the fun of it, just to see how crazy down this path and this story they're trying to tell it is. So I, I haven't even described the plot because really I, I don't want to give too much of away. It's just there's a man and a woman, and they're living together in a house out in the middle of uh, kind of uh, nature. And they get some visitors and some interesting things happen. And you just kind of follow the story from there. That's about all I can say. That's a pretty good summary. Yeah. I was really taken by mother. I I thought it was really good and uh, not for everybody. I I understand that, but I really got a lot out of it personally. So, so that's our recommendations for the episode, both of them available for rental or purchase or download on on a good online site where you may buy or rent films. And we recommend checking them out if you have time and if either of our descriptions sounded at all interesting to you as a viewer. So, Chris, I think we're done with the show. I believe so. We've done our two main reviews. We've talked about a couple of new movie news items and we had our recommendations of the episode. So if someone after listening to the show, Chris, has some questions, some thoughts, some feedback, maybe they agree or disagree with us on any of our takes on films. How can they get a hold of us? You can send us an email at info at the mesh.tv. Just mention foot candle films in the subject line. We'll 
get to it, try to answer some questions, maybe mention your email on air, but that's a good way to get in contact with us. Alan and I also have pages on Letterboxd where we try to keep track of the films we're watching. Sometimes we put little quick reviews on there, so you can check us out on there as well. Um, we have, obviously, backlog episodes on the TV, as well as if you subscribe to us in iTunes, you'll get an automatic download of our podcast whenever we put up a new one, as well if you happen to be in iTunes and you know, feel like being generous, give us a star rating. That always helps us reach more listeners. Yeah, we absolutely would love any feedback you can provide us through any of those methods. We'd love to have a, have a dialogue with you outside of the show if you've got some comments or questions or thoughts about films maybe we ought to check out and might be some future recommendations we can give as well. So with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap up the show. As a reminder, Foot Candle Film Festival, September 28th through the 30th. We'll have more information as we get closer to the date about that specific event. And we'll be back with you next time when we have uh, some more films to review and news to talk about. Thanks a lot. See you in the ticket line. Special thanks to Carpal Tuller for the show theme music. For more about Carpal Tuller, visit www.carpaltuller.com. You've been listening to The Mesh, an online media network of shows and programs ranging from business to arts, sports to entertainment, music to community. All programs are available on the website as well as through iTunes and YouTube. Check us out online at themesh.tv. Discover other network shows and give us feedback on what you just heard.